Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please go ahead and open it up to Revelation chapter 6. That's our text for today. And uh, let me just get us started here with a praise and a prayer request. Um, the praise is certainly cause for celebration, and I told Grandpa that he could be the one to give this praise, and he said, uh, if it came from me, it would sound like bragging, but uh, Jeff and, and Kathy have a uh, new grandbaby as of last night, and that means Josh and Jenny have a new baby as of last night. So baby Josie Leanne was born last night, uh, seven pounds, three ounces, and 20 inches long. So uh, let's make sure to congratulate the family there. We have babies being born here at Fellowship all the time, so it's an exciting time to be here. Um, and then I know the Underwood family would really appreciate our prayers today. Uh, Tiffany's son, Owen, is literally fighting for his life right now. Uh, so be in prayer uh, for Mike and Tiffany, and especially for Owen um, as, as he's going through this time. And, if, and we'll, I'm sure we'll send out this week more information about that. But just I just wanted to get you praying, church, uh, for Tiffany's son, Owen. All right, we are in Revelation chapter 6 today, and let me begin by uh, reading this scripture passage to you. Follow along with me. It's on the screen. Uh, certainly consult your Bible, and as you heard earlier, you can be on your phone too. I'll trust you're not on Facebook or Pinterest, uh, but that you're following along in God's word. Revelation chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. You'll remember that in chapter 5, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the slain Lamb, Jesus alone is worthy to break the seals of the scroll. All of heaven at the end of chapter 5 has erupted in worship, erupted in praise because Jesus, the Lamb, is able to come and take the scroll from the hand of the Father, and he alone is worthy to begin to break the seals. But remember, to open the scroll, each one of these seven seals 
has to be broken. We, we've talked about that and that idea a couple of messages ago, that this would have been a scroll uh, that would have been bound tightly and hot wax would have been poured over it, and there are seven different seals on this scroll. You see, this isn't the end yet. When we're talking about the breaking of the seals, these are signs of the end, but the end is not yet coming. I think it's important as we look at this text and, and try to understand what's happening here. Each of these seven seals has to be removed, and each one of the seals is significant in the text. Let's walk through the first four together today in these uh, first eight verses in chapter six that we're looking at. The first four seals are covered. Let's look at verse one. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. This is the first one. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of Revelation, is one of the most common images when people think of Revelation. When people think about the book of Revelation, this visually is one of the first things that, that come to their mind. And so we're going to be looking at these, these four horsemen, these four riders this morning. Who's the first rider? The original audience, probably, when they heard this, remember the seven churches scattered around Asia Minor, and this scroll of Revelation would have been taken to each of them and read aloud in their assemblies. What would they have first thought of when they hear about this first rider uh, carrying a bow, right, seated on a white horse? The original audience would probably have immediately thought of a people group called the Parthians. And the Parthians were fierce warriors, and they were known for a couple of things. They were known for riding white horses, and they were also known for being able to fight from those white horses with a bow and an arrow. Very strategic type of warfare. And so when the original audience hears this, this is the imagery that would have immediately came to their mind, and they would have immediately thought of these fierce warriors. You see, church, what I'm trying to convey here is that these four riders seem to represent the sinfulness of people and the effects of the fall. Now, I'm going to unpack that statement for you as we go throughout the study this morning. But sometimes we look at these four riders in Revelation, and people have, and they've interpreted these as being the act of God, that this is God doing this. But most Bible scholars would agree and contend that what these four riders actually represent is our sinfulness, the sinfulness of man. And so let's, let's begin to um, dig that out a little bit. Bible scholar Grant Osborne wrote this, and he said, the best option, the best option is to see a more general image here with all the riders relating to the human lust for conquest and its consequences. These are not cosmic or heavenly, is what he's saying, forces, but human forces at work. These four riders represent the sinfulness of man. That's what Bible scholar Grant Osborne and others are contending. 
It fits well uh, with how the bow is used in the Old Testament as a metaphor. If you were to track that throughout the Old Testament, you would see that the bow and arrow is often used as a metaphor for conquest and power. So it would seem, here's the point I want to make to you, it would seem that the first rider symbolized military conquest and the threat of war from other nations. The first rider of the apocalypse is war from without, war from other nations that is happening. Now, what about the second rider? I want to move through these pretty quickly so that we can get to some points of application here. What what does the second rider in Revelation 6 represent? When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another and he was given a great sword. Now the sword is imagery for war and death and it occurs over 100 times in the Old Testament. You see this imagery of a sword representing war and death throughout Scripture, but especially in the Old Testament. It's a very common image. And so I believe that the second rider symbolizes the threat of war from within. Whereas a bow and arrow is more of a long-range weapon, the imagery is more of war from without, the sword is more of a close weapon, and it, it symbolizes war from within. Civil war, civil strife, violence, violence happening within a nation between people. Boy, have we not seen that right now. And here, this writer, I would think, represents, and and many Bible scholars agree, represents that type of violence, internal strife that is happening within a nation. This writer's mission seems to be to remove peace and to allow people to turn their destructive instincts, their violent tendencies toward one another. Again, let me throw out a lifeline to Bible scholar Grant Osborne, another short quote here. God is allowing evil its final freedom. God is allowing evil its final freedom to show its true colors and prove once and for all why God must destroy it for eternity. So what we've seen here in the first two writers is the violence of people, the sinfulness of man, manifested in war between nations and manifested in violence within a nation. The third writer does require a bit more explanation. Let's look at verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, and and if you're like me, I read these verses for years, and I'm like, what on earth is going on here? Because the, what does the, uh, the, third, the fourth rider say, or the third rider say? It says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and, and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Well, what is that all about? Let me see if I can explain it a little bit. What are the pair of scales that this rider is holding? 
A pair of scales, another word for it would be a balance or a measure. It would be used to weigh out the amount of food that would be purchased, say, in a market during biblical times. You would put the food on one side and you would put the amount of money that it should cost on the other side. The purpose of the pair of scales, church, was to ensure that justice was, well, was to ensure justice, I should say. It was to make sure that the right amount of money was being paid for the right amount of food. And, and as I stressed to you last week in the message, justice and doing justice is something that is very important to the heart of God. God is very concerned that people, and especially the poor, are treated justly. Proverbs 16, verse 11 says, A just balance and scales, talking about the very thing that Revelation 6 is talking about, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. God expects people to treat other people justly. So what is being conveyed here, I believe, by the third rider is that there is a great famine that has affected the most basic staples of food of Mediterranean life. And what are those most basic staples? Wheat and barley. That's the most basic food that you would expect to have during this time period. Now, how much is a denarius? For the average working person during this day, when this was originally written, a denarius was a day's wage. So if you worked all day long, the average person working in a field or building a house or fishing would hope to earn about a denarius. It was a day's wage. The impact of the famine that is being talked about here in these verses is devastating. If he or she were single, what the text implies here is that they would work all day long just to be able to buy enough wheat to feed themselves for the day. Now, if they had a family, it really kind of complicated the matter. Now they couldn't buy wheat because wheat was more expensive. They had to buy barley. And so in order to feed their entire family, that denarius would buy enough barley to feed a family. Well, why am I stressing this? I want you to think about this in present-day terms. So I looked this up. The Bureau of Labor and Statistics today says that the median wage for workers in the United States in the first quarter of 2020, so this is pretty relevant, pretty current information, the medium, median or the average wage of the typical American worker today is $190 a day. That's the average. The average person in the United States makes about 190 or just for the sake of the math or, or for simplicity, let's say about $200 a day. And I want you to think about that in these terms. What if you had to work all day long for $200 a day, and if you were a single person, just in order to buy enough wheat to bake your own bread to feed yourself for that day, and that's how you spent your day's work wages? That's the type of famine that's happening in this scenario. And if you had a family, you couldn't even buy wheat. You'd have to buy barley, less nutritious, Probably, I don't know, if, I'm not sure, but I would imagine maybe it doesn't taste as good. 
and, and you would spend your entire day's wage buying that barley in order to feed your family. That's the type of scenario that this is talking about. I'm going to come back to this because, again, I don't believe that what is being communicated here in Revelation chapter 6 is the end times events yet. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. This is something that happens around the world today. I'll come back to that point, but let's move on to verse 7 for now. So going to verse 7, and then we come to the fourth rider here. It says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse... And its rider's name was Death. He's followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So now pestilence is added. We see some of the same imagery as we've seen in the first three riders, but pestilence is added to this. Pestilence is defined as a fatal epidemic plague. Now, how should we understand this? I want you to think about this in terms of the first two riders bringing violence. This is obviously the sinfulness of man. The second two riders bring famine and pestilence. I think I could almost make an argument that famine is also for the, from the sinfulness of man. And, and I'll talk about that in a second. Pestilence, though, is certainly because we live in a fallen world. Because the fall has happened, we're told that even creation is groaning. I want to offer you a couple of guiding principles at this point as we dig into and and we, uh, let me change my metaphor, we we wade into the deeper waters of Revelation because it's about to get heavy, church, the stuff that we'll be studying in the coming weeks. And as we wade into these waters, I want to offer you a couple principles specifically for this passage, but maybe a way for us to be thinking about things. Principle number one is that this is probably not a chronology of events. And what I mean by that is this. It's not that, first of all, war from without is going to happen, then civil war will happen, then famine will happen, and then pestilence will happen. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think this is a timeline And so much of popular eschatology, revelation-type preaching has followed timelines. I don't think we're looking at a timeline here. Uh, And and really, the reason for that church is principle number two, which is this. These events characterize the current age. Everything that we've just talked about, violence from without, violence from within, famine, pestilence, happens all the time. It happens all the time in the world today. Now, we've been maybe kept from some of it in our nation, but for many people around the globe, this is their common everyday experience. And so I think we need to realize that. These aren't just events that happen one day. These are events that happen today. They're happening throughout history. Jesus said this. Jesus said, as you see it on the screen, Mark 13, verses 7 through 8, he said, and when you hear, listen to what he says, of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And you, you see this type of thing with, uh, within eschatology all the time, within the study of end times where people, oh, well, look what's happening here in the world. Oh, look what's happening here. You know, Christ is coming back. He is coming back. But the church has thought for 2,000 years he's coming back today. And so these things, right, Jesus even said it. He said they must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. This is what Christ says. War, violence, famine, pestilence have all happened throughout history and they happen today around the world. These are the seals being removed from the scroll. One seal after another. These are the seals being removed from the scroll. But it doesn't mean that the end is happening now. So what should we take away from these verses? Let let me suggest a few ideas for your consideration. So I guess this would all fall under application here. What should we take away from this passage? First of all, the world lives in bondage to sin. This is not going to be a shocker, I think, for you. The world lives in bondage to sin, and sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. What, what do these verses communicate? They communic- communicate the depravity of mankind and our lust for violence. Now, I want to unpack that for you in, in, in some ways that maybe I haven't talked about as much so far yet. The impact of the fall has had on creation. Certainly when we are talking about things like pestilence, again, we need to understand that we live in a fallen creation. And then you turn on the news. If you're like me, you turn on the news and and you see violence around our country. You see violence happening around our world. You almost can't escape from it. Because it just seems to be all that we see. Conflicts between nations. Conflicts within nations. People hurting people. I want want to give to you maybe a, a totally different type of example this morning that's very close to my heart. Children. Children being abused in their own homes. We have kids in the the room right now, so I'm going to choose my words very carefully. But you guys know what I'm talking about. Children being hurt in their own homes by the very people that are supposed to be their shepherds, their parents, mom and dad. It's tragic. And and it happens all around us. We, We don't just have to turn on the news and see what's happening on, in a different part of the world, we know in our own communities, we know maybe even on our own street that we live on, there are homes where children are not safe. And, and it's always amazing to me as I sit on different committees in the community and we talk about things, important things, but we talk about things like how are we going to up math scores? at our school, and and, and we talk about behavioral issues in the public school classroom. Listen, if, if a child is being physically abused in his or her own home, he or she has a lot bigger things on their mind than the math test tomorrow. The, the violence that, that's all around us and we, we see it all the time, church. We see it all the time. 
I'm going to pick on both sides of the aisle right now, politically, so no one can accuse me of taking favorites. I believe that abortion and capital punishment, I'm being very intentional with what I'm saying, abortion and capital punishment have devalued human life. They've devalued human life. We have denied in our nation that all people are created in the image of God and therefore have value. value. Somehow, we have come to believe in our country, in our society, that we have a right to take human life as, as if we are God. Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, have mercy on our nation that we've allowed abortion to continue for all of these years, that we have taken the lives of people through capital punishment for all of these years. Do you know that one out of 10 people who have been executed through capital punishment have been proven to be innocent? Where else do you get that kind of margin of error and something else, and, and, and it's able to continue. What if one out of 10 airplanes that left the ground crashed? I don't think any of us would fly anymore. What if one out of 10 surgeries was not successful and the person died on the table? Nowhere else do you get that kind of margin of error, but for some reason, capital, capital punishment continues. These are very real things, and, and I believe that in our country, they've devalued human life. Things like famine, the horrors of famine are, are so much more common in other parts of the world. Famine is a real concern in countries like Yemen, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Sudan, Syria, Nigeria, Haiti. But I want to press this a little bit and show that maybe even this is because of the sinfulness of man, church. Do you know that we produce enough food? We produce enough food to feed everyone on this planet. The issue is not the production of food. The issue is getting that food to the people who need it. Because somehow, one out of nine people one out of nine people in the world, that's 821 million people go to bed hungry every night. 821 million. One out of nine people go to bed not having eaten that day. And we produce enough food in order to feed everybody on the planet. Why does that happen? It's because of corruption, it's because of greed, it's because of the sinfulness of people. These are the sad realities of our world today, represented by the four writers in this passage. This is what Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is addressing. The second idea that I want you to consider after the idea that the world lives in bondage to sin and sin has consequences is this. We ought not to love this world as our home. Amen, church? This is not our home. This is not our eternal dwelling place. I believe that we're going to get there in Revelation. It's going to be a recreated earth. Jesus is going to recreate 
And then it'll be our home. But right now, the earth, the world that we live in is not our home. Jesus, or John says it actually in one of his letters in 1 John. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We can't grow too comfortable here. And it's a struggle, isn't it? Because we want to be comfortable here. We act as though this is our home. Even, and I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about those of us who truly have trusted in Jesus for our salvation. And we would say heaven is my, I would say heaven is my home, but, but man, it sure is nice to be comfortable here. And we treat this earth and this world as our home, but the reality is that this world is dying. And the evidence is all around us. But we shouldn't despair, church. We shouldn't be like those who don't have any hope because we have a great hope in Christ. <laughs> and that Jesus is our hope. We, we have a hope that, that God truly is. Haven't, haven't we seen throughout our study so far in Revelation, God is sovereign over all of history. And God is bringing all of these events of history to closure to a climax. Bible scholar Ian Paul talks about that very idea on his commentary in this passage. He says, there's only one who is sovereign, the one, of, the one by whose permission the horsemen are released to allow humanity to reap what it is sown. And it is he alone, not the emperor, who can offer answer, answers to the crisis that face humanity. He alone can usher in the true age of peace and prosperity. One final thought for you. One final thought in response to everything we've studied and we're reading today. It's this. It's kind of a long sentence, forgive me. <laughs> but every part of this is important. Followers of Christ should be prepared to gently and respectfully share the hope of the gospel with those who are still lost in their sins. And if you say, well, Pastor Terry, where are you getting that idea from? I don't really see it in verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 6. This is the passage that I'm taking this from. It's a beautiful passage. The apostle Peter writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, he's writing into a persecuted people group, and we don't know Church, if we will one day face persecution, but we see the violence all around us, we see famine, famine, we see pestilence, and Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And listen to what he writes. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And please don't forget this next phrase. We don't need jerks for Jesus out there slamming the gospel down people's throat. We don't need people belittling other people, people of other faiths. What we don't need is people backing Muslims into a corner and telling them how wrong they are. And What we need is people loving people with the gospel because the gospel truly is the cure. Isn't it, church? 
And so Peter writes here, be quick, be quick have, to give a defense and the reason for the hope that is in you. And he says, but do this with gentleness. Do this with gentleness and respect. Have respect for the person that you're talking to, that you're sharing Christ with, that you're trying to love into the kingdom, not beat them up with your argumentation where you think they don't have any choice but to accept Jesus. Can we please move past that style of evangelism? But loving people with the gospel, gently, respectfully, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Church, here's what I'm trying to say. The gospel always has been. The gospel always will be the cure for a dying world. Always. That never, ever changes. There is no other way of salvation than through Jesus Christ. And so though it is true, we get to Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8, and we're like, man, this is a depressing message, Pastor Terry. This is tough stuff. Well, there's more to come as we study this book. We live in a violent, dying world, but the gospel is the cure for individual people who respond to the truth of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else there is nothing else that changes us at the core of who we are. And listen, when I say that, I fully know, I know maybe better than some, that people will say that I am being simplistic. When I say the gospel is the answer, I know that there are many people, people I've worked with over the years, who would look at me and say, you're being simplistic, you're being naive, and my response to them would be, that's okay. It's okay you feel that way. I'll be a fool for Jesus. Because I really believe what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the power for salvation for everyone who believes. I, many of you know, most of you know, I own a business that through the years has contracted with government agencies. And I've contracted through the years with community mental health, with the Department of Health and Human Services, with the Department of Corrections. And what I did for them is I basically, I developed programs, I created projects, and then I managed those programs and projects. And, and all of these things were to help people. And I learned a lot through doing that. So I would, I would study, if you're in this world, you know what I'm talking about, I would study evidence-based practices and, and the best practices for helping people. And I developed mentoring programs for kids and for men and women coming out of the prison system and for people to help them climb out of poverty. Uh, I've worked a lot in the areas of racial reconciliation and cultural diversity and all of those different areas. And, and, and you know what? I still believe in all that. And I still believe that the church needs to be engaged in all of that. I still believe that we have a responsibility, friends, to love people in the world and to help them. And I believe that that brings a smile to the face of Christ. 
when we love people and we help them through the difficult times in their lives and to alleviate suffering. I think that all of that is good and it's right, but here is what I know without a doubt. The gospel doesn't just help people. The gospel changes people at the very core of who they are, and they're cured. The gospel transforms people. Programs can help. Relationships can help. They can alleviate suffering. They can do good. But the gospel transforms us. It changes us at who we are. And I, I forgive me, I know I'm over time, but I have to tell you this story. So years ago, back in 2007, I met one of the most amazing men I've ever met in my life. His name is Dante Ferrazza. Dante, back in the 1960s, was, invo- was involved in organized crime. He was involved in organized crime down in the Detroit area. He was a wise guy. He was young at that time. And when, what happened was a guy from another criminal sect hurt Dante's little sister. And again, we have kids in the room, so I'm going to say it that way. Well, as Dante has told me the story, by the way, his nickname is Fuzz, which leads me to the next slide here. He's no, his prison name was Fuzz. As Dante explained this to me, at least back in the 60s, in Detroit, in organized crime sex, there were basically three rules. Don't ever force yourself on a, on a woman. Don't ever hurt a child and be in church every Sunday. He said, other than that, you could do whatever you want. Well, when this guy hurt Dante's little sister, Dante found him, popped him in the face, threw him back in the back of his trunk, took him out in the woods, tied him to a tree, and beat him to death. He just kept hitting him until he killed him. So Dante went to prison, Fuzz went to prison in the late 1960s, and he did 42 years in prison. About 15 years into his prison sentence, someone handed him a Bible, and he read that Bible cover to cover in his prison cell, and he met Jesus Christ. You want to know a cool part of the story Dante actually just told me last year? I I didn't know this part until then. He said, up until the day I met Jesus in prison, I had to fight every single day in prison. He said, if someone using prison talk, if someone punks you, right, you have to hit them because if you don't, you're targeted for the rest of the time that you're there. And so he said, for 15 years, I had to fight somebody every single day in prison. I met Jesus Christ, and for the next, what would it be, 27 years, I didn't have to fight one time. Not one time. Nobody ever got in my face. No one ever got in my way after I met Jesus Christ. So I meet Dante in 2007. I'm directing a mentoring program for guys getting out of prison, and I'm sitting across the table from him on 26 Mile Road at Macomb Correctional Facility, and Dante looks at me, 72 years old, and Governor uh, Granholm, before she left office, gave him a governor's pardon because Dante literally had a, a book this big of recommendations from every warden in the state, every ARUS in the state, just saying what a wonderful guy he was. He's a changed man. He had held every job that you could possibly hold in the prison system. And so Governor Granholm, right before she left office, gave him a pardon. And so he's in my class, and I interviewed him right after the class. He's 72 years old, and he sits across the table from me, and and this is what he says, Terry, 
Kind of sounds like Marlon Brando, you know, from The Godfather. He says, Terry, I need two things from you. I need a good mentor, and I need a good church. Can you help me with this, Terry? And I said, yeah, Godfather, I think I can help, help you with that. <laughs> and so we got him connected to both those things. He gets out of prison, and I, you know, he had a mentor through us. His one concern, he said, you know, just don't give me a, six, or, you know, a 22-year-old kid to be my mentor. I'm 72, you know. I need somebody I can connect with. So I found him a 73-year-old mentor. I said, is that going to work, Dante? He goes, absolutely, right? So they had a beautiful mentoring relationship. Also got Dante connected to a church. But two years into his parole, I, I wrote to his pastor and I said, can you give me an update on how Dante's doing? I have to read this letter to you. Forgive me. I know we're over time. This is what Dante's pastor said about him. Fuzz. He says, when it comes to Fuzz, it's really hard to determine where to start. Fuzz has a childlike faith. God's word says it, therefore I believe it. End of discussion. The first Sunday morning he came to the church, he had a, we had a potluck dinner after the service. After the dinner, my wife was talking to him and asked him what he thought about the church. His, his response was, I've been looking for a church for six months and now I've found the one that God wants me to be at. I found a home. He has only missed one Sunday in the last two years because of sickness. I was attending Ferris College, and we were, we were to make a class presentation over the material that we were covering. The topic I was given was long-term incarceration. So I asked the professor if I could bring a speaker to the class in a question-and-answer format. When Fuzz began to speak, the class was spellbound. After one and a half hours, the instructor told the class he would take a break and return in 10 minutes, but no one left their chairs. The class began to ask questions, and Fuzz spoke like they were all old friends. The professor now has Fuzz speak to her classes at Michigan State, Macomb Community, as well as Ferris State. Fuzz said to me, why does someone want to hear from some old con like me? I told him that he has lived a life very few people have lived and his insight is impacting the corrections industry for the next 20 years. Fuzz applied for membership to the church after attending for about six months. He was accepted with open arms. Currently, he is the head deacon, takes the offering, and helps serve communion. Serving the Lord with a big smile, showing God's love in everything that he does and says. During this New Year's Eve service, I asked the congregation to write down on a piece of paper some areas of their lives they really wanted God to touch this coming year. Fuzz wrote, a home in Port Huron, so he didn't have to drive so far to go to church. He was living in Macomb County at that time. By March, Fuzz had a home three blocks away from the church. It was just what he had been praying for. The home even has a heated workshop in the garage so that he'll be able to do woodwork in the cold weather. He's so proud of everything that the Lord has blessed him with. He has painted the porch, trimmed the trees, hand-trimmed the sidewalks with a kitchen knife. He keeps in close contact with his friends that are still in prison. Every day is a new adventure to Fuzz. I have taken him fishing with me. He stands in awe watching the ships go down the river. He has been boating and drove a boat for the first time in his life. He still says to me that he does not know why God has given all of this to him because he doesn't feel he deserves it. He understands something that we all need to understand, church. None of us deserve it. 
His greatest ministry is hope. He gives hope to those friends he left behind in prison. Many of those men that think they will die alone in prison and never feel love. He tells them how God loves them and encourages them to not give up hope. Fuzz tells them of the blessing of the Lord and when God is with you, who can be against you? Everyone in the church loves Fuzz greatly. His favorite song is East to West by the Casting Crowns. He, he loves it so much because it talks about how your sins are cast as far as the East is from the West. I tell Fuzz the miracle of freedom God gave to him was not to show God's ability to get things done. It was about how much God loves Fuzz. This letter, church, was written more than 10 years ago and can I tell you that Fuzz is still going strong? He's 84 now, still lives in downtown Port Huron. He's still a deacon at that same church, and he still loves Jesus passionately. The gospel changes people, who they are at the very core. The gospel transforms people. It changes us. That's what I know to be true. It's the cure that everyone needs as we live in this dying world. Would you bow your heads, please? Worship team, come on up. Let's sing as we close out our service. Listen, as they come, there are certain realities in the world. And I think, I do want to say too real quick that I do think that we have an obligation as followers of Christ to make the world a better place in whatever ways we can, in whatever ways that we can contribute to the common good and, and we can decrease violence and, and increase love and compassion for others. That's certainly our role as followers of Jesus. But there, there are certain realities in history that we're studying and we're going to study more in the book of Revelation. Certain things that are happening and, and church will continue to happen. Here's what I want, want you to walk away today with without any doubt in your mind. The gospel is the cure for individual people who will receive the truth of who Jesus is. And so let's proclaim it. Let's share it. Let's do it like Peter said. Let's do it with gentleness and respect, lovingly, not beating people up, but lovingly sharing the truth of the gospel with them that they can be rescued out of this dying world.